0: I was reading a um, -- I, I think it was a book or some, an article recently. I don't recall where it is, but I, I recall uh, the conversation that was taking place in it about our propensity to be persuaded by other people around us. It was a study done by psychologists. I think it was someplace over in the U.K. And they had gathered a group of people together with the purpose of trying to find out what kind of influence. Um, suggestion, the power of suggestion would have, and so they brought one person in, they brought a bunch in, at least the person who was coming in as the one they were studying thought everybody was on the same page. They weren't, it was only the one person that would come in that they would analyze their reactions, and they had apparently two squares that were almost the same size but not, and you could tell if you would look at both of them. One's larger than the other. But it was close enough that it was, well, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's uh, not much different. And so they would ask the group whether the squares were the same size or one was larger than the other. And they started on the other side of the circle from the person that they were studying. And they, the first person said, oh, boy, they're, 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 they're the same size. And same size, same size, same size. By time they got to the person that they were actually studying and asked that person whether there was any discernible differences, no, 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 they're the same size. Over and over again, as they investigated one person after another, in fact, they came to this discovery that 75% of the people that walked in the room, seeing two squares that were, that were different from one another, would say what the rest of the group had said. 75% of them would say, The very same thing. The power of suggestion. Over 75% of people in certain contexts are actually influenced by the group's perception. And so when we talk about being able to discern what is best, how do we, uh, when there's powerful influence of what everyone else thinks is best or right or good, holds such sway on who we are? And it goes beyond the power of suggestion. It actually goes to the the power of bias. Let me give you a reference point. I hesitate to talk about football this morning, but you're all talking about it. I would just say this. Everyone, everyone from Detroit was sure that the refs missed the pass interference call with Dallas. Remember that one? Everybody in Detroit was talking about it. The refs got it wrong. Isn't it interesting that everybody in Texas said the refs got it Right. See, there we go. <laughs> said with passion along the way. Now, let's go to another game. Let's go to the Dallas and the Green Bay Packers game. And everyone from Dallas is sure that the refs had it right to reverse the touchdown pass. Do I hear a chorus on that one? See, nobody's with me on that one. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but everybody, everybody from Green Bay said, you know, the refs got that one absolutely right. But nobody from Dallas, you know, they figured the refs were right one week and wrong the next, right? And then you go to the f- folks from Indianapolis and in Indiana who actually are convinced that a pound to a pound and a half of pressure in a football would have turned the tide of that game. Can you believe that one? <laughs> you know, Inflategate is all over the news uh, along the way. So, and, and everybody from Indianapolis is pretty sure that some real significant cheating got, uh, took place right there. Last week, the people from Green Bay wished they had someone to blame something on. There's no place to go with that. But isn't it interesting how we're biased by our bias and how we interpret a circumstance based on where we've come from. And sometimes it's the power of suggestion. Everybody else is saying it. Sometimes it's just that our minds are so good at convincing us that we're right in what we want to be right. And this not only happens in in, uh, sports, but it happens other ways as well, too. I know the story of a pastor of a large and thriving church who um, fired one of his staff who had been found watching porn at the very same time that he was in an affair with somebody else. I mean, isn't that interesting? That you can be so keen and so sure of what's right and wrong in somebody else's situation and be oblivious to what actually is happening in your life and somehow have the capacity, our minds are that brilliant, to be able to figure out a way to say, what I'm doing is okay. In fact, I remember listening on a radio talk show, it was on a Christian radio station, and young woman called in and she was describing the circumstances she was in and she loved this guy and they were living together and they weren't married and the, the person said now now how, how 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 is that possible for you and and she actually said she literally said this I know the Bible speaks against it but it's okay for me you know isn't that interesting we we are able to twist turn um, compile in such a way that it works perfectly for us. And before we give the folks from Detroit or Dallas or Indianapolis uh, or other Christians uh, too hard a time, it's true for us. If 75% of people in given situations have the ability to change their mind or be influenced or think something different based on the power of suggestion, And if bias has such a powerful impact, don't you think it's possible that there could be more than 75% of us in this room that are actually convinced right now that every choice we're making is absolutely right, justified, and correct? And it's not. And there's actually something that we probably ought to wrestle with and humbly walk into and say, power of suggestion and bias has messed me up on this one. Because it is so possible for that to be true for me and for you. Able to discern what is best. How is that possible in an environment that has such strong capacity to give us deep conviction about what possibly is not. The core element of our ability to discern what is best is actually found in this fourth thing that we're talking about this morning, and it is this. The core element in our ability to discern what is best is a longing for what is best, not a longing to fit in with the other Group of people where the power of suggestion is so possible, nor a longing for our biases to be to be made legitimate by the way we can rationalize, but actually for a longing for what is best. It's essential, and Paul actually places on this prayer and this prayer for us to be able to discern what is best. Bookends that actually bring into play the means by which we can discern what's best. That we can actually cultivate in our hearts a longing for the best thing. For the best thing. And here are the bookends. The bookends start with Paul's description of who they are. And it's so important that we know who we are. And he starts out in the end of verse 1 and he says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus grace and peace to you. That's how he starts out. You are God's Holy people. Some of you have in your translation the saints. It's essentially um, the same core word. That's where this prayer starts out. That's the beginning of it. And then you go all the way to the end of this section and we read this. To be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Saints filled with the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness. The beginning and the end. The beginning actually leads to the end. So let's look at the beginning. We're described here, we're reminded that our identity is that we are saints or we are holy. Now, I don't know what your reference point for that is. I'll tell you what my reference point was in Sunday School. Sunday school teacher brought in all of these pictures, and you can go into an art museum, and you can see pictures, particularly from the Middle Ages, and you see these religious pictures, and you see halos on everybody's head, really. Well, not everybody's, but the kind of the, the critical people. And, and I, I, I could figure out why they put a halo on Jesus' head. I mean... He was perfect. He lived a a sinless life. But, you know, there were halos on other people's heads as well in some of those paintings. And this is my perception. I think our culture has just gone that way with it as well, too, in the cartoons and other things you see, is that a halo represents perfection. Um, it, It is a person who has just got everything right, who is characterized by absolute goodness. And we actually even use this. We use this in our culture to describe, sociologists will use something called the halo effect. And we use the word to describe a person who actually thinks that they're inherently or innately good. And they self-describe with the sense of, I'm a really, really great, perfect almost person. Now, I don't think that the artists who painted those gorgeous pictures in the Middle Ages actually had that same perception. But I think that it's come to that uh, for all of us, at least for me. But you know what the word for holy actually is? The word for holy in the Hebrew actually means apartness. It means to be set apart. It means to be separate, to be sacred. The word holy in the Greek literally means to be absolutely and utterly distinctive. You see, it's not a reference point for there's a perfect person, it's a reference point for a person who has a call in their life to be absolutely and utterly distinct and unique. A person who walks into a room where everyone says they're the same, they're the same, they're the same, they're the same, says something unique and distinctive because their identity is wrapped up in their sainthood. Now, the thing that perhaps is good Um, about this but certainly different is that the standards for biblical saintliness are different than the ecclesiastical standards for saintliness you don't have to you don't have to have the uh, prerequisite miracles to be called a saint as is described in the Bible saint is not compliance to to a set of rules uh, that one measures their life against but the character of one's life that was my problem I thought to be a saint, to be holy, meant I would be absolutely compliant and that God was a compliance officer. He is not that one. This word, this word for holiness has to do with the character of my life, with the consecration of Of my devotion. And that's another word that's used for it, consecration. It just essentially means that every aspect of my life is pointed in the same direction. Every desire, every longing points in the same direction. And when a person has every aspect of their life pointing in one direction, guess what we call them? We call them passionate because everything is focused in, in in that one direction. We call those people passionate. And you know what I, I, I believe? I actually believe that everybody has passion. Everybody is, has embedded in them passion. And for a person to say, you know, I'm just not feeling any passion anymore. Guess what? It's not that they don't have any passion. It's that the passion is just pointing every direction. I'm passionate about that. And 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 I feel passionless because it's pointed in every direction consecration is to take all of those aspects of who we are and to head them in one direction god you are my lord what direction should my life be pointed in every 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 part of it and then i will live in consecration As a result of it. It is not perfection that the Lord is focused on. He took care of that for us. Why is it that we think a Christian gets so fixated on perfection because when God has already taken care of that? That's why Christ came. That's why he went to the cross and he died for us. It is not perfection that God is focused on, it is our longings that he's focused on. That's what he wants us to pay attention to because that's what he's paying attention to. Not your perfection. I want to know the longings of your heart. And because I made you and I know how you work best, how wholeness comes and how living life to the full can happen is by putting your longings, all lining them up and heading them in a direction that brings joy to you and impact to the people around you. You say, okay, so Mark, but look at the Bible over and over again focuses on obedience it focuses on purity. It focuses on godly behavior. I mean, it even says right here, in verse 10, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So now you're telling me that that, that doesn't matter? Oh, it does matter. You know why? Because, of, because those things, those pursuits, those longings that are not directed towards God's call for our life, and the way we were made, actually mess us up. It's why, it's why God throws the word sin around. Sin sin has to do with choices we make that reduce our capacity to live the way we were intended. That reduce our capacity to actually be able to discern what is best. Because there's just a bias that those longings create that take us off track. God God. God hates sin because it ruins our life. What sin does is it takes away the ability to discern what is best and it puts, gives us cravings that take us in all sorts of directions. Oh, I, I want that, but I really want that. And I, re- I ought to be like that, but, I, but this. And, and, and that's what happens. It just, it just pulls our life apart. And we see that over and over again. What does greed do with a life? It pulls it apart. It creates a bias. Everything that is heard is to justify this impulse. Same thing can happen with anger. Same thing can happen with lust. Some of you perhaps heard about our neighborhood actually a couple of years ago. There's a f- wonderful family in our neighborhood just across the, across the street. And, um, and uh, Beth called me. I was out of town and she says, I don't know what's going on over there, but there are police officers all over the place. They're there, they, I, I don't know what's going on. And uh, got back to town. Uh, I don't know if it was that night or the next morning. And and um, this guy, this this dad, I mean, he was he could have won the favorite neighbor of the year award every year going. You know, he, he, just a remarkable guy, great sense of humor, Help anybody, had every tool that anybody needed in the neighborhood for any possible thing, and was always right there to help. And um, I mean, it was a he he, he was a wonderful guy. And I went over to his house, and I said, hey, is everything all right? And he invited me into his office study area there in the front of the house, and he said, Mark, it's not. He told me a story of just this craving, this addiction that just grew in him. His daughter one time noticed it on his cell phone and noticed the conversations that he was having, and and um, he said to his daughter, "Just don't tell mom. I'm, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna handle it." And, um, and I can still see him sitting behind his desk, and pointing at the computer like it was absolutely his arch enemy. And he said, "I just couldn't stop," and uh, his whole life went. He's in prison, house is sold, family's in absolute disarray. The pulse, the pulse of things that can blow our life up. Why does God talk about this kind of stuff? Because they create a bias in us. That fracture our lives. The moral of this story is not better not get caught. It's ask God to redirect patterns. Line them up again. And head them in a direction that is life-giving. There's actually a tool that God uses to help us with this that it's necessary for us to embrace if we're going to be able to discern what is best, if we're going to have the capacity to push the biases away, a necessary element in this is confession. And this is what God wants for all of us, to be quick to confess. To be quick to confess. God's Word talks about confessing our sins to God, and He also talks about confessing our sins one to another. That there is a power in that. This is why our, our hope and our prayer for you as you get connected with others in small groups is that those people that just feel a little bit distant and strangers to you, actually you'll hear stories and tell stories and develop relationships and discover one or two in there that you'll get to share the character of your life with. So that you have someone that you can go to and be quick to confess. There's something that is just so freeing, something that, that, that beats back the distortion when we actually take those drives, those impulses, those longings, those justifications and say them out loud. I have a couple guys in my life. They know everything about my life. There's something that is absolutely freeing about that. In fact, it was just Last week, I was getting together with them, a couple of them. And I was talking about something I was really wrestling with, an attitude I had. We were talking about a whole bunch of things. We were almost ready to pray. And I said, you know, there's just this attitude I got. And um, they, they wanted to dig into it. And I told them more about it. And they said, okay, now we're getting into the real stuff, Mark. This matters. And they prayed for me. And they prayed with me. You see, this is the tool God uses to help us align our life and get all of the arrows pointed in a direction in which we can be passionate in a ways that allow us to discern the voice of God because there is no mob suggestion. There is no inbuilt bias. There's actually the capacity to hear what God is saying and to be able to do it. Confession may be the best thing you do as a gift to your kids. Confession may be the best thing you do for your family. maybe the best thing you do for your friends. It is certainly the best thing you will do for yourself. because there's a God out there who doesn't want to be a compliance officer. He wants to take those longings of yours and redirect them again into a life that's filled with peace and wholeness, to all God's holy people. In Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. Now, there's another aspect of this, actually, and in, uh, in your in your small groups this week, we're going to actually give you a chance to be able to take the confession that we use on Sundays during co- uh, communion, which will be part of our uh, our worship next Sunday morning, is to read this confession together and. And it just describes all of the aspects or many of the aspects of life that can be a constructive tool for us as we do the assessments that are important for us along the way. But there's something about this, this um, passion. Um, it, it's not just simply a passion to be a saint and to wear a halo. The passion is meant to, direct, to be directed in a way that is life-giving, not only to us, but to others as well. And the passion we see here that God intends for his saints is that our lives might be characterized by bearing fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Passion can have a wonderful focus, and it can be righteousness, which we read about in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God, not just simply to wear a halo. You see, we're described as saints. But the end is that we would be characterized by the fruit of righteousness. There are two aspects of of this eliminate, of, of who we are that eliminates the bias. And it is this. A personal commitment to godly character. And secondly, a personal commitment to godly purposes. To be quick to confess and to be clear in my calling. To be quick to confess and to be clear in my calling. There are other places in Scripture where we lay out, where it's laid out for us even more thoroughly what this righteousness looks like. In your small groups, you're going to go back to Isaiah 58. Let me just read a little bit of this text that talks about what righteousness is. Verse 6 of chapter 58. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing, your healing, will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. That's the righteousness that God has for us. A passion that is biased according to the passion of God. And, and these kinds of things being true in our life. Someone has talked about righteousness and what is it and what does justice look like. And we had a conversation with someone just recently. He was a national leader and he's a, he's a part of uh, the Christian Community Action um, Association. Remarkable influence all over the United States actually. And he said, you know the problem with justice is it's so hard for everybody to agree on. You know, each, each group has its own perspective about what justice is. And he says, I've decided that rather than talking about injustice, let's just all agree on what, let's, instead of talking about justice, let's all agree on what injustice is. Injustice is this. It is a situation or a structure, a construct that doesn't seem like it fits who God is and prevents a person from flourishing. It is a situation, it's a structure, it's a context that actually harms the capacity for a person's life to flourish by restricting, by imposing, by pulling from. That's what injustice is. And God invites us to be passionate about that so that God would be glorified and that the world would be restored and that the curse would be reversed. You know, there's this thing, and it's described actually by Paul in Philippians chapter three, verse six, where he talks about kind of a, a legalistic righteousness. You know, it's, it's this, it's this um, 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 uh, legalism, and it's just making sure you have all your ducks in a row. And he says, that, that's what I used to believe, not anymore. Righteousness for me is to live the cruciformed life. Jesus went to the cross, so that the world could be reconciled to God, so that the world could be recognized, re- rescued from brokenness. And then he says, okay, now we get to go with them. And every passion of our life is about that. To get to do with Christ what he intended to do through his crucifixion, by the power of his resurrection, and the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's not our perfection that God is looking for. It's our longings. What do you long for? (laughs) Is it worth your longing? Is it, in every category of your life, aligned with what is good? Now, you'll get a chance to be able to talk this week, too, about the power of a discipline here. It's actually referenced in Isaiah 58. It's the power of fasting. It's so this is incredible tool that God gives to us as a tool that helps us to align our longings in directions that matter with a very simple thing, to just go without, to go without food or fancy drink or whatever it might be. And to just really begin to build into our life or continue to build into our life an awareness of what longings matter most. For us to say to my stomach, I'm sorry, you just don't matter enough to me right now. He does, and his purposes do. To just develop a habit of reminding myself and my body that there are certain longings that matter, and there are others that are way down the ladder. And it's a tool for us. He even talks about it in Isaiah 58 as... Fasting that actually gives us the capacity to what? Have our voices heard on high. To have conversations with God where we hear what he has to say and we're able to discern what is best. A couple of years ago, I, I liked coffee because it kept me awake. And uh, over the last couple of years, I've had some help uh, developing an appreciation for coffee and realize that there are some extraordinary flavors and types of beans from all over the world that have just got these standout uh, flavors to them. But this is what we're told about coffee, is that the difference in the tastes of different coffees isn't just simply due to various elevations that the coffee is grown on, but actually the soil in which the plants are grown. In fact, I've been told that if you actually have a coffee plant and um, it's embedded in soil where there's been garbage strewn about, the coffee bean will taste, have notes of garbage in it. Imagine that. Blueberry notes and garbage. (laughs) And And it all depends on where the coffee plant was planted. And the soil... The soil determines the character of the being. The fruits of righteousness are determined by the soil of holiness. If this world is restored, it will be by acts of righteousness done by people who resolve to cultivate the soil of holiness. Holiness is the soil in which righteousness grows and the fruit of righteousness will be evidenced in a world that is filled progressively with people that are flourishing. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, thank you so much for your words to us. We thank you, first of all, for your grace of forgiveness, that us being perfect is no longer even an issue that we have to give attention to. And so, Lord, we pray that you would align our lives, that you would take our passions and you would point them again in the right direction, so that not only we would flourish, but that others around us would flourish and that at the end of all things your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.